Well, good morning. Now, if you'd been around in the time of Jesus in Galilee, in the first two years of his ministry, you would have been forgiven for thinking that he was an unstoppable force. He, he, he performed astonishing number of miracles. People came from distances that we now calculate to well over 100 miles from all different directions to get to Galilee to meet the healing prophet. And we see accounts of this in the Gospels. Hundreds, thousands, probably tens of thousands of people pouring into Galilee month after month to catch a glimpse of Jesus and particularly to have him lay hands on their sick. You would have thought he was an unstoppable force. He had overwhelming popularity in the, in the district. He performed these astonishing miracles. We've looked at one or two of those miracles already. But that was Galilee. Now, Galilee was the north of the country, a hundred miles further south, the capital city, Jerusalem, with a temple, the priesthood, the, the government, the Roman governor's uh, troops. That was really where the country was controlled from. And the district was called Judea. It was a completely different district. It was like London and the home counties. So up in Galilee, this kind of strange religious revival was going on. But down in Jerusalem, there were mixed feelings. People didn't know what to make of this strange Galilean prophet. He occasionally appeared once or twice in Jerusalem, very briefly, for the feasts. Not very often. And people from Jerusalem, some of them had been up and they'd seen this, this amazing prophet. And questions were being asked of the authorities. The religious authorities had a council called the Sanhedrin with the high priests and some of the Pharisees and Sadducees and some of the important religious leaders. And it was their responsibility at all situations in the life of Jewish history to give an adjudication when somebody claimed special status or even messianic status. They had to make a decision. And so people were beginning to ask them, what do you make of Jesus of Nazareth? Just listen to what the people are saying. Listen to the incredible stories we're hearing from Galilee. So what they did over a period of time was they sent delegations of Pharisees and teachers of the law north to Galilee. They appear here and there in the gospel narratives and most people don't notice them. They ask questions. They make observations. They go back to Jerusalem. They consult with their colleagues. And then a crucial moment came, which most people don't really notice in the Gospels, but it's one of the most important points in the whole of the Gospel narrative. It actually appears in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. It's not our text today. I'm giving you the prelude to the story we're going to look at, and you'll see the significance in just a few minutes. But an interesting thing happened. I'll just read you a couple of verses. They brought him a demonized man who was blind and mute 
And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, the Jews taught that only the Messiah could heal the blind and the mute, and only the Messiah could raise from the dead. And only the Messiah specifically could heal the, those who were blind from birth. So when Jesus healed the blind and the mute, it says here in the text, Matthew 12, verse 23, an interesting statement. All the people were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? Now that's a name for the Messiah. This, this is in Galilee. So they were beginning to put two and two together up there in Galilee. The miracles were coming thick and fast. The teaching was astonishing. The personality was amazing. The moral focus was amazing. They were beginning to put two and two together and they came to that point and they said, could this be the son of David? But there were Pharisees and teachers of the law present who'd been observing, questioning, consulting their colleagues in Jerusalem. And this is what they said. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebub, Beelzebub, a synonym for Satan. They made an astonishing and sinister adjudication. This is a false messiah. He's so false, he's not just deluded. He's so false, he's inspired by Satan himself to deceive the whole Jewish nation and, and produce a false messianic hope. That's what they said. And if you follow the narrative after that, you'll see an astonishing dialogue between Jesus and the people and the Pharisees where Jesus brings very, very clear adjudication. You know, this whole nation is in danger if you take that opinion. The whole nation is in danger if you take that opinion. So the Pharisees went back to Jerusalem and they said, well, we've given the verdict. The people of Galilee still followed Jesus, but the people of Jerusalem are very, very confused. What's going on here? Who is this guy? And then shortly after this time, according to John Chapter 7, Jesus was invited to go up to one of the feasts in Jerusalem. They took place three times a year, and most Jewish men went, were obliged to go as often as they could, and Jesus often went up to Jerusalem. But he now knew that every time he set foot in Jerusalem, he set foot into a hornet's nest of controversy and a place of intense personal danger. Why? 
because they had adjudicated. It is by Satan that he casts out demons. He is a false messiah. So from that moment onwards, their intention would be to eliminate him. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, but he, he did not want to go up to Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So in fact, this is in the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the main feasts. He went up secretly halfway through the feast and he entered into Jerusalem. And wherever he went, people thought, do we believe in him? Is he going to get killed? Is this the Messiah? Is this some self-deluded guy? There was a great, great controversy in Jerusalem concerning who Jesus was at this time. And we read about it in John 7 all the way through. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, where thousands of people were up in Jerusalem celebrating coming out of the wilderness of Egypt and all sorts of other things, there's a famous statement, John 7, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. He just appeared and he taught. But as soon as he spoke, there was controversy every time in Jerusalem. As soon as he spoke, on hearing this, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? They were divided. So the story went on. Controversy went on during those few days until in John chapter 8, we just read at the, uh, at the end of John 8, uh, Jesus claimed that he had existed before even Abraham was born in, in a public debate. And after this, it said, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Are you getting the general feeling? This is the context. The context of a miracle we're going to study, which has huge prophetic significance. The question in Israel was, is this really the Messiah? The Feast of Tabernacles is taking place, and in the Feast of Tabernacles there are many ceremonies, and one of them, let me tell you about it, is a really interesting one because it relates to our story. During one of the days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest, the high priests and some others go with some big water jars and they leave the temple compound and they process all the way through the streets of Jerusalem to the other side of the city to a, um, a water place called the Pool of Siloam. They fill up the water containers to the absolute maximum with this beautiful fresh water which comes from a stream that's been re-diverted um, into, uh, into the city. And they take this water back into the temple 
And they pour out all this water on the temple to symbolize the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus just said that he was going to give living water. Did you just notice that? That's the context. He said that on more or less the same day that that ceremony took place. When they went to the pool of Siloam, they picked up the water and they went back into the temple. Remember what I told you about blind men being healed. You got that in mind? What did they think about it? They thought it was a miracle that only the Messiah could perform, and that's based on scriptures in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 42 in the Old Testament. Just keep those things in mind. And we left the story just a moment ago. Where did we leave it? They took up stones to kill him. And he slipped out. And then, and you'll say at last, but then comes our story. Then comes our miracle. Then comes the story chosen for today. If you have a Bible, have a look at John 9. First of all, the first seven verses. Remember, Jesus has just come out from a situation where he might be stoned to death. He's just slipped through the crowd in a very busy city. As he went along, it says he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it into the man's eyes. Notice he didn't just heal him immediately. But what did he say? Go and wash in the pool of Silo, where they'd just been for, the, for that amazing procession to get the water. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, I always feel a little bit sorry for the man in this story, although he had a wonderful miracle happen to him. It was very, very confusing for him because this man had been blind from birth and he begged in the streets of Jerusalem and uh, he'd been begging and he knew that the festival times were the best times to beg because there's so many people in the crowds and more money comes in. He'd not really heard anything about Jesus. He didn't know anything much about him as we find from the, for the, from the subsequent verses. And suddenly he ends up in the midst of a huge controversy about who Jesus is, which we're going to find out in just a few seconds. But the great and wonderful thing in the short run is that uh, this is this man who comes from absolute nowhere. He's the bottom of the bottom. He's a, a man who's been blind from birth. Suddenly he's healed. And he's healed in an astonishing and prophetic way, almost a provocative way. Jesus says, go to that pool of Siloam. That's where they're going for their ceremonies. But I'm bringing living water. I'm bringing a new dispensation. In effect, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I really am the Messiah. Whatever they're saying up there in the authorities, I'm the Messiah coming for this nation. I'm coming for Jerusalem now, and this blind man's going to be healed. And who can heal a blind man? Do you know the answer to that question? According to the Jews, who heals the blind man? 
the Messiah. He didn't just do it in Galilee. He did it under their noses. Under the noses of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and the Sanhedrin. He just, by chance, inverted commas, came across a man who was blind from birth. And he healed him. Amazing story. Let's read on. Verse 8. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. Seems odd, doesn't it? But he himself insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes opened? He said, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they said. I don't know, he said. You see, that he got himself mixed up in a huge controversy that was really nothing to do with him. He said, well, there's a guy called Jesus. I've heard people talking about him in the street. I've never seen him, of course. He hadn't yet seen him. Did you realize that? He's healed, but he hasn't yet seen Jesus. He will do in a minute. Just wait. Well, this guy called Jesus came past and he said, do this and do that, and I did And Look what happened to me. The neighbors said, oh, there's something incredible happening here. So the whole district in Jerusalem where he lived was in uproar. You know, that guy who used to beg, he's running around saying, Jesus healed him. Where is Jesus? I don't know where he is. He disappeared off into the crowd again. Jesus was playing hard to get at this point, by the way. If you read John's Gospel carefully, you'll see how clever he is with his movements. It's another story. Verse 13 to 16. They brought brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. By the way, they had a rule, no healing on the Sabbath. Do you remember that one? Therefore, the Pharisees, who asked him how he had received his sight, uh, 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 then he said, he put mud on my eyes. He, he replied, I washed and now I see. Then some of the Pharisees said, to my amazement, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. <laughs> By the way, if you're determined not to see something, there's always a way not to see it. Have you ever done that in life? It's determined not to believe something. There's always an excuse. And if you're really set in your ways, you'll always find a reason not to believe and face the extraordinarily obvious. And had Jesus made it obvious to them that it was a messianic sign, he healed the blind man. He did it in Jerusalem. He did it under their eyes. There were eyewitnesses. The family was there. The man was there. He did it through the pool of Siloam. What else did they need? Maybe they needed a television screen. The whole thing in video. No, they still resisted. But he was healed. There's always an excuse not to believe if you really don't want to believe. Don't you think that's an amazing story? 
just want to give three thoughts about the significance of this story for us. Got the three points we're just going to put up here. All these things are important. But very often with healing miracles in the gospel, we stop at the first point. So I want to underline the first point because it's abundantly true, but it's not the whole significance of this miracle. This was a sign of grace to a needy man. And in every miracle, there is the love of God for a needy person. That's always true. And it was true here. And this man was really, literally, in the gutter. That's where he, that's where he, that's where he sat. And he hadn't just sat there for a short time. He sat there for his whole adult life. Year after year, begging, have mercy on me, a few shekels, and Jesus had mercy on him. We always need to recapture that incredible sense of God's grace in any miracle any miraculous circumstances, whether it's healing or finance or God's provision or blessing or protection in any way. It's just there's love, there's mercy, there's grace. And this man is just a, an amazing example. And I think it gave Peter the courage not so long later when he saw a cripple at the beautiful gate in the beginning of the book of Acts, a similar man in a similar place, in a similar circumstance. He healed him, but he would have had in his mind, aha, Jesus healed that blind man just such a short time ago. And can I tell you, there's an important thing about the grace here, because Notice the extraordinary conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Did you notice that? What an extraordinary statement. The Jews generally believed that the sin, sin in the family, parents particularly, was the cause of inherited illnesses. That was a general belief in the day, which the disciples were merely reiterating. Notice that Jesus does not endorse that belief. Yes, sin is within every human being, and we're responsible for that. But sicknesses that come upon us through birth or some circumstance that doesn't con we can't control are not laid at our door. And when we lay this at the door of people, it's the heaviest possible burden. And Jesus prophetically is indi indicating here he does not endorse that view. It's a view that weighs heavily on the Hindu religion. 
my previous life produces who I am in this life, and if I led a bad life, it'd be the bad circumstances of this life, the law of karma, you may be familiar with that. But it, this, this idea crept into Judaism, and a good example um, of version of it is in the book of Job, where the comforters say, well, Job, you know, you've got so many sicknesses, you've got boils, everything's gone wrong for you. There must be something you've done. Is there a hidden sin somewhere, something you haven't told us? Come on, Job, let's have it. No. Nothing to do with that. Now, that was, I think that was a sign of grace, because this man heard this Jesus saying, Probably the first person who'd ever said to him in his life, your blindness was not caused by your sin or particularly your parents' sin. What a relief. It's part of the general disorder of fallen humanity that afflicts here and there in ways that we don't fully understand but which we don't blame people for. Now, I think that's a great sign of grace, along with the actual healing itself. But the second thing about this miracle that's important, it's very, very important. It's a sign of the true identity of Jesus. He really is the Messiah. And he explained it through this miracle to the Jewish context as clearly as he possibly could, given the context. That's why I've labored the point and explained the background, because you understand what people could think when they actually experienced this event. And those who were open to the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah would at that point have said, yes, that clinches it. And those who were determined not to believe would have done something like the Pharisees did when saying, no, whatever he does, we'll never believe in him. And one of the most important things about Christ himself is that there is a battle in the human heart all over the world for the identity of Jesus. Who is he? This battle rages around us in all sorts of different ways. Is he just a man? Some people say he didn't even exist. Some people are content with the idea that he was a great moral teacher. Some people are content with the idea that he founded a world religion. Some people are content in some religions with the idea he was a great prophet but not the supreme prophet. Some people believe that he has the power to redeem our and, and reform our kind of broken self-image. There's kind of half-truths in many of those different things. But the biblical truth is he is none else but the Messiah, the one and truly eternal Son of God with power to redeem humanity, to break the power of sin and to bring in God's kingdom. And we can never settle for a second best view of Jesus' identity, and that was the battle that was raging in Jerusalem. The, the Jewish people were perplexed. Who is he? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law tell us he's 
false messiah. We think he might be a prophet. He seems like a wonder worker, seems like a great teacher, but some people say he's the messiah. There was a tremendous battle for the identity of Jesus. If you read John 7, the next three chapters all the way through, just read the story through and you'll see the battle going on in the conversations. And this miracle nailed it. Many other things nailed it too. He's the Messiah. None less than the eternal Son of God. He, just, he doesn't just heal as a sign of grace to broken mankind, although that's wholly valid and wholly wonderful and utterly absorbing to us. But miracles reveal his true identity. By the way, there's a funny little end to the story. Remember I told you the man hadn't even, hadn't even seen Jesus yet because his eyes weren't opened when Jesus said, go to the pool. And then Jesus heard a little bit later on that not only had the Pharisees uh, condemned his testimony, they actually kicked him out and threatened the family, realized that they were being threatened of being removed from the synagogues because they were identifying with their son who'd been healed by this false Messiah. So there was a great controversy going on. You can read it in the text. And Jesus, verse 35, when Jesus heard they'd thrown him out, he found him and he said to the man who'd been healed, do you believe in the Son of Man? Another title for Jesus. And this is what the man said. Uh, <clears throat> Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've never seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. such grace. He saw him with his eyes, not just heard his voice saying, go to the pool of Siloam. So the man said, and this should be our response, Lord, I believe. And John adds for emphasis, and he worshipped him. John's comment. Not just I believe in my head. That day, he gave his life to serve Jesus. A man he couldn't even have seen a few hours ago. And finally, This is a sign of the coming kingdom of God. We still live in this incredibly paradoxical world. Some people are healed, some people are not. Some blessings that God promises we experience now, some are still to come. The kingdom has come, but not in its fullness. Even the people who Jesus healed would subsequently have become ill and died, naturally. 
Have you ever thought of that? It's an interesting point, isn't it? The kingdom has come. But there's a greater kingdom to come. Now we live in that creative tension. A kingdom now and a kingdom not yet. And the church lives between those two realities. Some people emphasize entirely the kingdom to come in the future. Some people emphasize entirely the kingdom coming now. But I, can I tell you a better method is to emphasize both very strongly. We live in that tension. Not every question is answered. Not every person is healed. Not every issue is fully resolved in this life. But if that man was healed then, and if he worshipped the Messiah, he would see a greater kingdom in the day when Jesus returned to earth a second time. He'll see it with you and me. And guess what? You might even meet him one day. I live in that tension between now and not yet, even in my own personal circumstances with my wife suffering a long-term illness. Many of you do too. But I believe in the kingdom now just as much. And I believe in the kingdom yet to come. I believe in both. And I think we need to affirm both. And when we fade on one or the other, let's strengthen our faith in what God can do now and in what God can do in the future. Anyway, Jesus isn't here now in the flesh. So how do these things apply to us? Well, the Holy Spirit is here. And my conviction, and I'm sure it's yours too, is he wants signs of God's grace, miraculous signs to break out time and time and again through the power of the Spirit. Because he loves needy, weak, sick, vulnerable, confused, troubled people like you and me. And so I endorse Terry's emphasis particularly on believing for more and more miraculous signs. And secondly, the Holy Spirit is here because he always wants to reveal the full identity of Christ. One of his great ministries is to reveal Christ. So let's not buy into any worldly half-truths that you get from outside the church or even sometimes from within the church where people are losing sight of scriptural foundations. Jesus is this, Jesus is that, Jesus just like Buddha, Jesus is whatever. I've heard them all, talked to many people. But the Holy Spirit continually exalts Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God who died for us rose again from the dead and is exalted right now at the Father's hand of God. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He lifts up Christ that we may not slip into a rather ill-formed version of understanding who he is. And the scriptures lead us in this direction, which is why we preach the scriptures so enthusiastically.
And finally, if God does a miracle among us, can I say it's not just for the moment, it's also a sign to the future. You may be healed, you may be blessed, you may be provided for in a wonderful way now. But that's not the totality of the reality of what's happened to you. It's a sign for the future. You may be baptized, you may come to believe in Christ, it's wonderful now, but it's a sign of the coming kingdom because you join that kingdom on that day. And so I I bring to you this simply amazing little story embedded in John's gospel. A sign of grace to a needy man. A sign of the true identity of Jesus. And a sign of God's coming kingdom, which we live for and believe in. And he wants to use us. He wants the Spirit to fill us so we have more confidence to be uh, conduits of that kingdom, not just passive receivers, but to others. So what I'd like to do now is to invite the musicians back, right now, if they could come. And I was just pondering on that lovely, rather old song now, the Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. Maybe we could have the words up, Tom. I wonder whether we could just conclude in a moment to just in a moment just to invite the spirit to come. Maybe you could could you play it through once, once uh, who's leading us through? Just play it through once. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Mm-hmm.